Over the past few weeks, uh, I was telling Dave Fickett earlier in the office, it's really hard to pick, I mean, what do you preach at Christmas? You know, it's always the same old texts, same old stories. And so uh, I chose this year to try to uh, bring us into the world of Christmas through the idea that Jesus came to this earth to redeem a fallen humanity. We like to think of all the glitz and the glamour and all of that, and, and Christmas is beautiful, and we can get caught up in the spirit of Christmas and miss the meaning of Christmas. Uh, we know Christ is the reason for the season. I hate that cliche, but there it is. Um, we know that Christ is the reason for Christmas, but why? What did he come to do? And what we've been looking at over the past few weeks is that he came to redeem, to be a redeemer for humanity. The judge of all the earth came into this world to experience judgment. Having done no wrong, no sin of his own, he came into this world to experience judgment for us, for his people, to take our sin upon himself. And so behind the cradle, behind the manger, behind the shepherds, behind the wise men and the gifts and all of the beauty of Christmas is this reality that Jesus came to redeem us from our sins. And we ask the question, how does He do that? And our catechism is really clear that He does it as a prophet, as a priest, and as a king. And last week we talked about Jesus as our prophet. He comes and speaks the word of God to us, the word of salvation, but he also is the word of God. And he transforms, listen, he transforms the terror, the earthquake, the lightning, the fire, the, the fearsomeness of Mount Sinai where Moses took the children of Israel. He transforms that into what the writer of Hebrews said is Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. He brings us to that new mountain, to Jesus Christ, the one who mediates a new covenant between God, his people. And he brings us to the sprinkling of blood, which speaks of forgiveness and not vengeance. And today we're going to look at Jesus, our priest, and we're going to do that from kind of a bizarre text, but I hope it'll make sense of it for you. Leviticus chapter 10, if you can look in there, Leviticus 10, or if you don't have your Bible, you can find it. It's printed conveniently for you in the bulletin. And we'll read these first few verses of Leviticus chapter 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and 
Elizaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them out in their coats and out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang down. Do not tear your clothes, lest you die. And wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, beware, bewail the burning of the Lord which He has kindled. Do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did, according to the word of Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Well, yikes. What in the world does all this mean? This, this text is right up there uh, with uh, Jephthah making this rash oath that he would sacrifice the first thing that came out of the door of his house as a devotion to God. And the first thing that came out of the door of his house was what? His daughter. And he had to kill his daughter, so the text says. Or what about Elisha? You know, Elisha's walking through the town, and these young men, these boys come out, and they start mocking him, and out from the trees comes a she-bear and uh, her cubs, and, and maul these boys, dozens of them. And then there's Balaam and his talking donkey. And everyone knows that donkeys don't talk, right? Unless you listen to some politicians and you, you, know, you know, they do talk. So let's look, at, uh, let's look at a few things with this text. And I hope, I hope I can make some sense of it for you and show you, uh, first of all, what went wrong. Let's talk about what went wrong. And secondly, why the outrage? Why is the modern mind, the modern thinking, why does this text bother us? And it should, and if it doesn't, something's wrong. And you need to come see me. This should bother you. Okay? It's meant to bother us. And finally, uh, what does Christmas say to Nadab and Abihu? I have no idea what this text has to say about Christmas. I'll just be honest with you. I must have been out of my mind choosing this. So I don't know what this text says about Christmas, but I can tell you and will tell you what Christmas has to say about Nadab and Abihu. So, let's look at it. What went wrong? Well, the short answer is we really do not know. And so any attempt at speculation is probably going to fall short, but I'm going to make a stab at it. I'm going to tell you what different uh, uh, theologians and commentators have said. In verses 1 and 2, it explains what happens. They offered up unauthorized fire, which the Lord had not commanded. If you look up the Hebrew word, it's no help. It just says strange fire. So something went wrong. It was the incense was wrong. The coals were put in the incense. And I, you know, in a Protestant church, we don't use the censers, but the tradition I come from, the Eastern church, they use these gold censers. They're brass now, but you know, they, they're, they put a coal in there and they put the incense and they do. You've probably seen it. It's really quite beautiful. The smell can be a little overwhelming. Uh, 
but you know that you're worshiping God, the, the cloudier it gets. Right? We've got to figure out how to do that. See, the modern churches try to do that with fog machines. And I've been trying to get a fog machine on Amazon, but I just, you know, the, the session will not authorize that money. They just don't understand the need to cloud things up in here. <laughs> so, look, we don't really know. I don't know if it was the wrong incense, wrong code, whether they did it at the wrong moment, whether they introduced some pagan elements. You can read all these in a commentary. I mean, you can look until your eyes cross. You just can't find. Did, did, they, did they, somehow did they move behind the veil? Did they get behind that big heavy curtain in the tabernacle that was separating them from the, or did they try to go back there? Who knows? And then there's this very puzzling uh, part, verse 8 and 9, look at it. Then Moses warns them after all these terrible things have happened. He says, look, drink no wine or strong drink when you go into... Presbyterians hate this verse, by the way. Drink no wine or strong drink when you go into the tent unless you die. You're to distinguish between the holy and the common. So some, in fact, uh, one of the Bibles I have, the Reformation Study Bible, you would think they would know, right? I mean, they, they know everything. They said these guys were drunk. They had been drinking too much, and so they were careless, and they were doing, you know, who knows what they were doing, intoxication. Well, look, I don't know, and frankly, Neither do the commentators, and, and we don't know. We just don't know what happened, but something went terribly wrong. And fire blazed out and consumed these two men, the sons of Aaron, and they died from the fire. But here's some things we do know. And, and listen, what we don't know is not as important as what we do know. And there's a lot of things we know from Scripture that we kind of go over, and that's what I'm here for. I'm here to let you see the things that we should see and to caution you about, you know, wild speculation about things we really don't know. We know something went wrong, but here's what we do know. We know that these people in Israel and every culture around them were very familiar with these ceremonies. Now, they are... They seem strange to us, and when you're reading Leviticus, I'll be the first one to tell you, it is rough reading. What does all this mean, and all these dietary, and all these, you know, scabs, scabby skin, and mold in your walls, and all, what in the world is going on? And, and you can look, sometimes people write whole volumes about the dietary, oh, well, it's because of this, and this, and this, it's not any of that, but I can tell you this that we do know that everybody in the ancient Near East was familiar with these types of ceremonies. Everybody practiced them to one degree or another. In fact, you can go now into some of the most primitive and unreached parts of the earth in the 21st century, and you can find tribes that have never seen a Bible, never heard beans from apple butter, and yet they're doing things to somehow mediate between whatever's up there and out there and themselves. It's incredible. And anthropologists have noticed this, not just Christians and theologians and those people. This is something that is universal. And these people were very familiar with these ceremonies. So don't think that they just, you know, kind of, whoops, well, I wonder where this goes and, you know, makes a mistake. 
There was detailed, if you read Leviticus and you read these early books in the Pentateuch, you see that there was excruciating amount of information. And there was a period of time when Moses and Aaron were being instructed first directly by God and then they had, you know, we seem to think that Aaron and Moses just kind of lived over there by themselves, but no, they had schools, they had hundreds of people that they were training and getting ready for this. And then in chapters 8 and 9, we see that they actually began the ceremony and they were able to ordain these young men for the priesthood and, they were, and, and Aaron offers a sacrifice and everything goes perfectly. In fact, it's repeated over and over. They did as the Lord commanded them. They had instruction. They had the warning. They knew what was going on. But in chapter 10, something just goes, whoop, like, wow. Something just jumps out at the the tip. Everything's going great. And all of a sudden, this. And the modern mind rebels. We we go back and we go, what is going on? This is not fair. Could God possibly be this harsh? And Moses reminds Aaron, In verse 3, this is what the Lord said. It's like He's telling Aaron and everybody else around, this is what He said. He said if we we trifled with Him, this would be the result. It's not like we didn't know. So what is going on? This is what the Lord said, among those who are near Me, talking about the priests, I will be sanctified, or I will be holied, or I will be in the old language hallowed. I will be respected. I will be shown the the, the right uh, attitude of heart, mind, and body. I will approach God in the way He says, not willy-nilly however I decide. And i got to tell you folks, this rubs us so wrong, especially in the West, especially in America where we have rights. And we think our rights actually extend to God Almighty and are able to infringe upon His rights. We actually believe that. So what does He do? One thing that we know that is so fantastic about this text is... God tells Moses, don't let the priests leave their post. Don't let this horror, this terror that just happened, move them from their post. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I had chills. And I still do. When Moses and God says, don't move. Stay there. Because somebody's life depends on it. If you move, if you go outside with the anointing oil on your head, everybody will die. Everybody will perish. Let the people mourn. He tells them, look at 6 and 7, let Israel bewail the burning the Lord has kindled. Yeah, you ought to be upset. Yeah, it should bother you. Yeah, you should cry not only for the people that died, but for the sin 
You don't hear that word in church anymore. The sin that was perpetrated against a holy God. I can hear Dr. Sproul, R.C. Sproul saying to, to thousands of people at, at the First Baptist Church in Orlando, what's the matter with you people? What's wrong with you? That you don't realize God is holy. And we're not. And that something very terrible is wrong. Otherwise, why all this hoopla? Why all this rigmarole with priests and blood and lambs and on? I mean, what's going on? The book of Leviticus is full of it. We, we almost get overwhelmed. We, we, in our yearly reading, many of us are going to start reading our Bibles over again in January. We, you know, Leviticus, oh my God, I'm going to need more coffee. Something is being said, and I don't want us to miss it. Because it's life and death. Look at Nadab and Abihu. Cost them their lives. And it will cost you your life as well. We must not trifle with God. We can't presume on His grace. Oh, He'll forgive me. That's just His job. His job is to forgive and to love. Yes, He is love and He does forgive. But never think that it's His job. Otherwise, you're not talking about grace anymore. You're talking about merit. You're talking about you got to earn it. You have to do something to be worth Him forgiving you. But the minute you say grace and mercy, you're not talking about merit. You're talking about something God does unilaterally, just Himself. He just decides. He says, I'm going to show them mercy. And I'm going to pay the price for that. Now you might right now be thinking, well, you know, Chuck, didn't Nadab and Abihu pay the price? I don't know. Let's see. Why the outrage? Why does it bother the modern mind? See, the ancient people, I can almost promise you. Now, I don't know. I'm speculating, so let me just be honest. I don't know. But I'll bet, I'll bet the ancient people, when they read this story, not just the Israelites, but anybody in the ancient world that read this story, and I'll bet if we went to different parts of the world right now, not Western America, but just different parts of the world, and read this story to them, I'll bet you money. And I am a betting man. I will bet you money that ancient people and even less sophisticated people in the world today would have said, of course, you don't trifle with the deities. You don't mess with the, the gods, whoever they are, them, he, she, it, them, whatever they are up there. You don't mess with them. It's like one of our pastors in Atlanta. He got 
Uh, he, he was, uh, you guys know this story from uh, Perimeter Church, Randy telling the story about him. Yeah, you know, trying, they're trying to deal with somebody to buy some property for the church. And, and the guy was just really nasty and mean about it and, and uh, told Randy, I don't, believe in, I don't believe in God anyway, and I don't care what you all need. And I'm not moving at it. I'm not moving. Please, we'll pay you a good park. No, I'm not. I don't want you to have it. I'm against you, you Christians, you crazy Christians. I'm going to, if I have to die first. And Randy said, you know, he stopped the man. He said, stop, stop, stop. I will be happy to help you. I will begin praying today that you die. Because he had just told Randy, he says, I don't believe in God. I think you all are full of nonsense. And Randy said, okay, but can we buy your property? I'm an atheist and I don't believe. Randy says, okay. I'm going, to be, I'm going to help you with this. I'm going to start praying today that you die. And the man got hysterical. Please don't do that. Don't, but you said you don't believe in God. What difference does it make? Let me pray for you. <laughs> so ancient people would have said, oh, of course, you don't mess with God. I mean, come on. But even people who don't believe would have been surprised, wouldn't they? If they had been offering strange fire, unauthorized fire, and all of a sudden fire comes out from the presence of God and burns them up. I mean, these are people who were worshiping God. These pagans were worshiping deities that didn't do anything. They just stood there like this. And the psalmist mocks them. He said, they have eyes and they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have arms, but they cannot save. They are dead, dumb idols. And Isaiah mocks him. And Isaiah, he says, he says you, you take a piece of wood and with a little bit you make your fire and you cook your dinner. With a little bit of the block of wood you take and you warm yourself so that you're not cold. And then he says, you take the rest of the block of wood and you carve it into an idol and you fall down and you worship it, you blockhead. Will you worship a block of wood? Don't you see? He's very logical. He says, don't you see you've burned a little bit in the fire and you've warmed yourself with a little bit? He said, now you're going to worship the rest of it? How crazy. But we still can't get over it, can we? Poor Nadab and Abihu. What in the world is going on? Listen, just listen. We presume... We presume innocence, perhaps ignorance, or a simple error on the part of Nadab and Abihu. Whatever the case may be, God appears harsh, unfair, unreasonable. We immediately find fault in Him. Why is that? Could it be that we know God is holy and we're not. Could it be that we know that any degree of sin, listen, any degree of sin, and I, and I don't presume to know what yours are, I only know what mine are, and I do. That they cannot, those sins cannot be taken lightly. They cannot just be excused. Something must be done. 
Hadn't God made it clear to Moses, Aaron, and the boys? Didn't every culture in the ancient Near East and the rest of the world, at least until modern times, have an understanding of transcendence and holiness? Is that why Moses warns Aaron not to grieve, but to put his hand on his mouth like Job was compelled to do when God finally reveals himself? Why are we bothered by this text if it's just a bunch of primitives making up stories for things they can't explain like spontaneous combustion? Isn't that the claim the atheists make? Why we invented God in the first place? Because we're terrified of the unknown or the unknowable, of the transcendent? If that's true, then why do the atheists protest the loudest at injustice? Or natural disaster? Or other horrors? If there's a God, how could He let this happen? Why bring him up if you don't believe? Why does it bother you in the first place? Why are you who don't believe in God so afraid? Is it because we know there is something, someone out there Is it because we know the difference between right and wrong? Is it because we took the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and ate when God only wanted His beautiful creation to know good and only eat from the tree of life? Was God being harsh when Nadab and Abihu perished? And not every living thing within a hundred mile radius? How, listen, how do we mere mortals lean back, peer into the heavens, and point a bony finger of accusation at God who we either don't believe in or who we really can't even claim to know anything about. And finally, what happens when someone sins, really sins against you? What happens when they don't just take your parking place at Sierra Vista Mall? What happens when they steal, rape, and kill wantonly and gratuitously somebody you love? What do we want then? We want an eye for an eye. A tooth for a tooth. In fact, that's not enough. We want fire to blaze out of God's altar and consume them. Somebody say amen in this quiet church this morning. Because you know that is the truth. 
Let somebody cross you. Let somebody mess with your life. Let them do it gratuitously for no reason whatsoever other than they just want to be selfish and mean and hurt you. Yeah, there's a level to which we're willing to forgive, but there's a line that we will not let anyone cross. Yes? There's a line we will not let them cross. And we will demand justice at that line. And we'll want that fire then. What does Christmas say then about Nadab and Abihu? Well, I think if you've been tracking with me any length of time in this church, you know what I'm going to say, and that is this. Nadab and Abihu are simply emblematic. They were real people. I'm not saying they were mythological or this is a fable. They were real people. But what I'm saying is they were emblematic of a human race, an entire human race that is chronically addicted to dissatisfaction and dissatisfaction at a cosmic level. Our original parents, get this, were not satisfied with paradise. Now most of us spend our whole lives working and then we're looking forward to what? What are we looking forward to in work, 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 work? What are we going towards? Retirement, but you're too old and and tired to do anything after that. They are emblematic of a human race that has trifled with God from then till now. We've never taken God serious. Never. We have made God in our own image so that He can never be offended. Because no matter what we do, we will find some excuse for why we did it and excuse ourselves before the God that we ourselves made. Right? How easy is that? How wonderful could that possibly be, you blockhead? (laughs) Right? That's what Isaiah is talking about. We can always create a God that we can satisfy. We can just make up excuses. Until you put the wrong sense, uh, incense into the censer wrong. Or until you get drunk and do something crazy. And what we say is, here's what we say. I'm doing the best I can. Sort of. See, if, if, you, if somebody says to you, I'm doing the best you can... I'm doing the best I can. Don't say anything. Just look at them and start to smile. Because eventually the guilt will take over. And then we'll go, sort of. I, I know I'm not really doing the best I can. It's just an expression. I'm doing the best I can, sort of. Well, at least according to my own measure, I'm doing the best I can. Especially if I measure myself against other people. Oh, and by the way, I get to choose those other people that I'm going to measure myself by. I'm going to go find the dregs of society so I can measure myself by them. But never mind, there's other people better than me. We don't want to talk about them. There are a lot of them. And when somebody commits sin against me, something really bad, it's all out. Eye for eye tooth for tooth, and more, and more, and more. I want fire. 
and Jesus Christ. Does it make sense now when Jesus steps onto the scene and he said, how do you find fault with your brother when he has a little splinter in his eye? Are you going to help him remove that when you've got a log in your own eye? Do you know that when he said that to people, they were outraged at him? It outraged, they wanted to kill him for saying things like that. We like those sayings, don't we? <laughs> See? Gotcha. No, we don't like them either. As long as Jesus is saying he's talking about something like that. But wait until it's us. Wait until we're the one. Now you're talking. Now we've got a problem with the censer and the incense and the charcoal and the fire and whether or not they had too much. Now we've got a problem. What do we need? What we need and what the whole entire New Testament is screaming at the Old Testament and the Old Testament was listening and wanted it, had been waiting for it like we wait for Christmas. All these Old Testament saints were begging for somebody, somewhere, out of some place, come down here and be a better Nadab and Abihu, be a better Moses, be a better Aaron, be a better priest, somebody please. Please, deal with this thing that's got me. When Christ appeared, listen, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered, listen, once for all, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we, listen, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect was tempted like we are, yet without sin. Let us then, here you go, let us then with confidence draw near. Where? To the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, there's only one great high priest. This is what the catechism teaches us, folks. One great high priest. This is what the scriptures teach us, folks. One great high priest who took God's holiness utterly serious who did not in any way trifle with God. And when He was crushed, 
And beaten down to the ground, he stood his ground. He gave no, he gave no ground to the enemy. He stayed in place for you and for me. He went all the way for you and for me. Never had the world seen a great high priest like that who took God's holiness so seriously and at the same time understood our weakness, our frailty. He knew that nothing, nothing less than His own blood, His own life, would get your life back. And for what? So that you could then turn and forgive those that have hurt you and wounded you to where where you want fire to come down and you know, I don't need that now because the fire of God's judgment came into the heart of Jesus Christ and I'm free to forgive. I'm free from being enslaved to sin and wickedness because my great high priest entered that tabernacle for me with His own blood. Will you trust Him this Christmas? Will you give your life to Him? I pray that you will do it. Amen. Father, thank You for Your kindness and Your mercy that endures forever. Let us never forget what Christmas is about. The manger, the angels, the wise men, the Virgin Mary, all beautiful images pointing us to a great high priest who gave his life for us, who not only offered the sacrifice, but became the sacrifice himself. Help us never to forget that, Father. And everyone that has wounded and hurt us in our lives, help us to begin the process. We know it will be a lifelong process sometimes to truly forgive. But help us to take the first step to enter in to receive your forgiveness and to extend it. This Christmas, this new year, help us to mark it with the blood of Christ, our King. Amen.